You previously worked as a data analyst. So what made you want to transition into a customer-facing sales-focused role? What is a sales engineer? What does your day-to-day look like? Basically landed in Australia. I applied and got the first job that took me, this door-to-door sales job. And it was a crazy experience. My life philosophy is I don't want to be on a path because it's easy and I fell on it. I want to be on a path because I chose to be. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Data Scientist Show. This is Daliana. Today we have Jenny Wu. Jenny is a sales engineer for data products. Currently, she works at Hex, a leading collaborative data workspace. She has experience in a variety of roles in data. Previously, she worked as a senior data analyst at Noom, a data consultant at Salalum, marketing analytics manager at DocuSign. She also took a career break to travel around the world for over a year. Today, we'll talk about sales engineer versus data analyst, how to design a career based on your personality, how to transition into a customer-facing role from a technical role. If you like the show, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment, and give me a five-star review. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Hi, thanks for having me. So before we dive into your career journey, can you tell us what is a sales engineer? What does your day-to-day look like? Yeah, a sales engineer is the unusual combination of a salesperson and a technical nerd. So on the one hand, I'm talking to strangers and trying to convince them to buy the product. And on the other hand, I'm talking to those same people as data geeks who are geeking out over this technology. And so my day-to-day looks like me talking to data leaders about their problems in that data space, and then figuring out how hacks can solve those issues. And then a lot of that too is me helping them understand what is the value that they can have in Hex, both in terms of fighting for budget, making a case internally, so that they can bring this in for their teams. You previously worked as a data analyst. So what made you want to transition into a customer-facing sales-focused role? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, do you want the long story story or the short story? Give us the long story. We're ready. We're ready for it. Okay. So... Let's see, I've done a lot of different jobs in my career. Started out done in research biology, went into healthcare consulting and then analytics, and then back into consulting, back into analytics. It's been a roller coaster. And throughout that time, I've had a mix of customer facing roles as well as internal roles. And I think of all the times that I've been in a customer facing position, it's always been much more interesting to me. It's, I, I felt like it energized me more, whereas inter, in internal roles, I think it was like a little bit more draining. And so at a certain point, I decided that I wanted to be intentional about my career. I wanted to figure out exactly what I like, what I don't like, and basically plan the path that I will take for the next, I don't know, however more years of my career that I have. And so I did a few exercises to understand like, what do I actually want? One of the frameworks I used was the design my life one by, I think by two Stanford professors. And I just sort of went through the exercises and figured out what is the path I want to be on. What were the key moments that influenced this 
transition, at what point you decided I want to apply for a sales engineer role? Yeah, that's a good question. So along the roller coaster of my career, I've done a little bit of everything, analytics, consulting, analytics, consulting. And one of the most impactful moments was when I was traveling, I also ended up doing a temporary job, door-to-door sales of all things. And it turned out that I had a knack for it. I, on good days, would knock on doors. People would invite me in, offer me food, offer me drinks, alcohol. And I realized that was some of the highest highs I've ever had in any job, along with the lowest lows. So fast forward a few more, a few years and a few jobs later, I was at a point where I was deciding, I realized I wasn't happy in an internal role. And I was trying to figure out what exactly I wanted to do next. So I had the sales door-to-door role in the back of my mind. And I'm like, well, that was really energizing for me. So let's figure out what else, what is it that I really do enjoy doing? Mm -hmm. And that little random side job ended up paving the path for me to enter sales with my data background. Yeah, that's really interesting because a lot of times when we think about our strengths, our skill set, we think about our technical skills. I think it's interesting to pay attention. What are some other skills that you enjoy energizes you or other people give you compliments? Maybe you're very good at gathering people together, organizing things or public speaking. I think that would be an interesting exercise to think about how do you factor those things you're good at energize you in your next role. So when you were uh, interviewing for this role, are you also exploring other opportunities? How did you decide which offer uh, you wanted to take? Uh, How do you decide which offer you wanted to accept? Yeah, so that was a fork in my career because on the one hand, I'd been building towards this data-oriented role from what I've been doing. And on the other hand, there was this new and shiny sales engineering role that seemed like it would be a great fit for me, but in some ways I had to start over. And so when I was interviewing, I had I ended up with an offer. One was to stay on the current path and the other was to go into sales engineering. And it was tough because I had an offer for a, go-to-mark, a senior manager of go-to-market analytics versus switching over to sales engineering. And part of the decision-making was using some of the exercises in that book to understand, to write down exactly what drains me, what energizes me. And then I compared that to the day-to-day of each of those roles, because the day-to-day will determine your happiness more than anything else. Like you have to enjoy the journey to enjoy the role. And it turns out that while it would be more, I guess, more traditional to go on that, continue on that path. I realized that sales engineering had a lot more things that excited me and energized me. I think it was a better fit for my personality. And I was, I'm still pretty young in my career. So even if I make a switch now, it's setting me up for a better future. Yeah. Do you remember what were exactly those elements that energize you or drains you? For example, when you compare the sales engineer versus a growth marketing role, or maybe we can also add being a data analyst. Yeah. So one of the biggest things that drained me 
was when I was in the analytics role, there'd be times where I'll just be working on something by myself. I'm heads down and I'm not really talking to people as much on a day-to-day. Like, obviously I have to talk to stakeholders, collect requirements, all of that stuff, but actually doing the work requires a lot of head down alone time. And I realized that what really energizes me is just talking to people, sharing ideas, having any sort of interaction. I think that's also the difference between an introvert and an extrovert. Yeah. And what about when you think about sales engineer, you mentioned there's also another growth marketing role. When you compare those, what are the things that energize you or drains you? You said you were at the kind of fork in your career. Yeah. So the other role was, it was still like in the data space, like senior manager of analytics, but within Mm -hmm. go to market. And I think the difference between sales engineering and like those sort of internal roles is in sales engineering, you have a lot of different people that you'll talk to, like all the prospects and it'll change with over time. Whereas on the other hand, like internal, you have your internal stakeholders, you build relationships with them. And those are the only ones that you end up, that you really work with on a day-to-day basis. I think having, it wasn't so much that it was draining so much more so that having that variety talking to a lot of different people, being able to understand what different data leaders are doing in different companies, that seems so much more exciting to me. Yeah. And can you tell us what's the day-to-day of sales engineer? And also, what are some transferable skills from being in analytics that you can use being a sales engineer? Yeah. So the day-to-day, it's a lot of me partnering with my AE account executives who are responsible for bringing in the account and managing the account, a lot of meetings with prospects and then internal deals or internal projects rather. So what that might look like is I might have a bunch of meetings lined up on my calendar to talk to prospects. And it could be anywhere from a demo to doing a POC where I'm helping to scope out the POC, figuring out what their use cases are, how hex fits in, and then guiding them through the product as they're testing out the product. So there's a lot of different types of meetings. And then a lot of it is also prepping with Mae to strategize on how do we approach this deal? What what are the use cases that matter? What's the messages that would resonate with these people? Like what are the problems they really care about? And then the last part is also just really understanding the product. Because Hacks is a startup, we have, we're always releasing things And a large part of my job is just keeping up with all the new things we're coming out with and be able to speak to that to our prospects. Yeah. So I think one advantage of you in this role is you worked as a data analyst. So you understand your customers' struggle, where they come from. What are some other skills you can leverage as a data analyst in your current role as a sales engineer? Yeah, I think having that data background especially if you're selling a data product is so important. Like it's so useful because you were the customer. So you understand exactly what the pains are. You understand the world and what would help address those problems. Like a lot of times I pull from my previous stories to tie into the problems that they're facing and then provide solutions 
using hacks for how to address those same problems. Mm. So I think the transferable skill is just, you know, having being in the space, knowing about everything that goes on in this role, in this world. Yeah. I think the other really valuable transferable skill for data analysts is stakeholder management. Right? You're constantly communicating with your stakeholders, gathering requirements, and it's not too different with a prospect because you're still understanding what are their problems? What are they trying to solve for? What is this analysis being used for? But I think the difference is just like applying that you're a product expert. So taking what you know, and then applying that to the product. Right. And also how your project get evaluated is different now. Previously, you're delivering analysis or reports, and now how does your success being evaluated? Yeah, it's a huge difference. So before, yeah, like you said, it's based on projects. There's always more projects. There's always more ad hoc requests. But now it's more definitive. You have a prospect, the deal either closes or it doesn't, and then you move on. And what I really like about the role is that success is way more clear. You can even measure it to a dollar amount if you want to. And also closing a deal, at least for me, it sounds like very stressful because there can be a lot of external factors you cannot control. So is this a new challenge for you or this energize you or motivates you more? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's energizing to me because I see it as problem solving. You know, there's, it's true that there's only so much in your control. They could have, they could not have budget. There's a lot of other things in their world that we don't even see that might lead to a deal closing, but it's fun to strategize and figure out what exactly do they care about? What are the risks? How do I, how do we identify the risks so that we can understand if this is going somewhere or if it's not, that's fine, but then we don't invest time in it. And I think that puzzle is something that really energizes me. And does it frustrate you when you work on a potential client for a long time and then they didn't end up buying? Does it feel like a failure you have to get over or that's just part of the process? Yeah. I think if you want to do this role for a while, you have to just move on mm -hmm. and roll with the punches. Um, I think initially... It was really frustrating to put in so much work and then for it to not happen. But I think now like there's always something else to be working on. So you can put your energy into the next deal and have it closed or like, or not, but you can put the energy into the next deal and I guess just move on. Yeah. The reason I asked this is previously I was in a very technical role, a data scientist at Amazon, also part of my work is a bit like machine learning engineering. And later I started to create contents on LinkedIn. I started this podcast. So I started to explore roles working with marketing teams. So for example, helping Amazon or helping others to create educational content. So there's this role in the data AI world called developer relations. Mm -hmm. So basically you host events, you create external contents, mostly focusing on developers or data science practitioners. So kind of one to many, this type of role. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, I was very excited. I thought I could do this 
but eventually I still help my companies with uh, marketing and content creation, especially leveraging my social media. But I decided not to step in this role a hundred percent because I feel although I enjoy content creation and connecting with other developers, but I'm not sure whether I like how my success is measured, which is by how many views you got for your events, how many people sign up for it. And especially this type of role is very focused on top of the funnel. So sometimes it can be very far from the final closing of the sales deal. So it's also hard to measure the RI. So after I analyzed this, I decided to stay as a data scientist while maybe say 20, 30% of my time, I help the company with marketing or content creation. I want to share this because I think it's important to think about what you enjoy doing and be creative about your career trajectory, but also really understand the new role to understand what are the new metrics and will you be enjoying the new pressure comes with the new metric. Yeah, for sure. I think that it's just so important to understand what you will enjoy or not. And I think it reminds me of me, like I, I used to do, when I was consulting, I had to do a project management role, even though I was a data and analytics consultant, they just put me on this because I had a healthcare background. Mm. And on the one hand, it was the most one of the most impactful projects I've ever done. It was sort of an innovation arm within the company. And I was part of the small team to grow out this product. And it started with us, just the team leads and me, and grew to, I think, 70 people or something like that. And my role was project manager. So I was responsible for the success of the project. And a lot of it was the tactical logistics admin stuff, like creating the roadmap and the swim lanes, following up, checking on timeline, like really just hounding down people and updating things. And on the one hand, it was a very successful project. Like it grew so big and one of the biggest learnings I've ever had in my career. But on the other hand, I just on a day to day was so drained from having to do all these updates, always having to follow up, always having to make sure the like 50 little things were in order. And so even though project management is important for my individual workflow right now, it's a much smaller part than I ever had before. Yeah. It sounds like you already had some sales experience when you were doing door-to-door -door sales in Australia. Did you learn how to do sales while you were working on the job? And what are some skill sets you adopted in that experience that help you to be a better sales engineer today? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when I was doing this job, I had basically landed in Australia. I'd been there for a few months and I just figured I'll do something to save up on money. So I applied and got the first job that took me, this door-to-door -door sales job. I had never done anything like it before, but I figured I'm traveling. I had my travel brain on, which meant that I'm just going to do new things and see how it goes. And it was a crazy experience. I never, I don't think I would ever go back to it. I don't think I'll ever do it again. But some of the biggest things I learned was 
just having, I think tough skin is one of it because when you're doing door-to-door sales, you have to knock on 20 doors, 60 doors, a hundred doors a day. And a lot of times people don't want you there. Like you open, someone knocks on your door, your first thought isn't like, oh, hey, how's it going? It's what do you want? And so there was a lot of rejection and that translates over, I think in the real world, but also especially in my current sales role. And I think your question earlier about, does it, do I feel like failure when it doesn't close? If anything, it feels, it feels easier because back when I was doing door-to-door sales, I just had so many people say no to me. Did you read some books when you were doing door-to-door sales or did you feel that skill set came to you naturally? Yeah, that's a good question. The skill set came from mentors and then also looking at other people in the role who did it really well. So whenever I pick up anything new, the first thing I do is look around and see who are the top salespeople, who are the top people doing this? And then I focus on what they do. So whenever we hang out as a group, I'll go up to this person and I say, how did you close that deal? Do you have Mm -hmm. any tips or tricks for me? And I also shadowed some people. So I pick up on their good habits and took those away with me. I think I also read some books, but a lot of it was just doing the job and applying what I've seen from other people into it. Yeah. I think people should do more of this in tech companies. Hey, you are doing this really well. Maybe I just sit in front of your laptop for, (laughs) you know, 24 hours or for a week, just shadow you, see how, how other people work. Can you share some, something specific you learned about those best sales people? Yeah. Well, some of the things, so there were, it was really interesting because there were a tier of people who were really good at sales and then the average, and then the bottom people just kept rotating through because if you can't do the job and a lot of people can't, then you leave. And hanging out with the people who were really good at it. One thing that they did really well was persistence. So people are going to say no to you, but is it going to, is it a real no or is it, they just want you to leave Mm. and being comfortable saying basically objection handling and saying, why are you saying no? And understanding the motivation behind their answer so that you can speak to that. Right. There's a book about negotiation Mm -hmm. called Getting to Yes. And there's someone else argue. I think it's the guy, Chris Voss. He wrote Never Split the Difference. He talked about getting to a no is also very valuable because they're giving you a response. And then you know why they're saying no. And also sometimes when the other person says no, it makes them feel they can protect themselves. They're safe. And following up on that, maybe after they say no, they can give you the real answer. So yeah, that's an interesting point. And do you feel you can leverage those same strategies in your current role? How's tech sales different from door-to-door sales? (laughs) There are so many differences. But I think one of the, I think that specific skill of understanding their objection has translated over Mm. because I think it's very rare that people just come and say, I want to buy this thing. Yeah. It's usually, 
I'm thinking about it. Maybe I want it. Maybe I don't. And so understanding what makes you hesitant, understanding, do you really care about this feature or this ability? Or is this other trait that this will unlock for you much more meaningful? Like, do you care more about collaboration for your team? Or do you care about the fact that you can write a specific cell in a certain way, write a specific code in a certain way? So there's, I think, pulling it back to the big picture and understanding what is the reason, like, what is it that you really care about is a big takeaway. Chris Voss also does a really good job. Like, he has some amazing YouTube videos on hostage negotiation, which is why he's able to write this book on Never Split the Difference, because you can't split a difference on a hostage. And the getting to know is something that I use a lot just to understand, are you really interested or not? And the idea is the no-oriented questions where let's say that you're making a cold call to someone. This is not something I do, but let's say you're making a cold call. Instead of saying, is this a good time? time? Yeah. Yeah. Instead of saying, is this a good time? You say, is this a bad time? Yeah. So usually people say, oh, no, it's not a bad time. And then you kind of get a permission. But what do you think about this? I, I think about this a lot. This definitely works for some people. But does this come off as being manipulative? Yeah, I can see why you say that. I think it depends on the person and the intent. For me, I care about figuring out, is this a good fit for the company? And also, I will only ever sell things that I truly believe in. Yeah. So if this is not relevant, then I will just ask the question upright. Like I'll identify risks. Do you see value Mm. in this for your team? And then if no, then we move on. I'm not going to continue to try and sell them because it's a waste of my time. And I also want them to have something that they find useful. Right. And uh, you talked about finding out whether they're actually interested in it. And sometimes people are afraid of saying no. They want to be nice. They'll be, yeah, maybe you can follow up after a few weeks, but they're not actually interested. And your time is also valuable. You can only work with a few prospects. So how do you find out whether they are being nice or they're actually interested? Do you have a list of questions or framework? Yeah. So it's called discovery in the sales world. And there's so many different questions that you can ask. Yeah. Uh, There's different frameworks that you have. Like, for example, MedPick is one of them where you want to, and I I don't remember all the letters to be honest, but Mm -hmm. there's budget, there's timeline, there's pain, who's the champion, who's the buyer. Like there's a lot of information that you need to get to understand if this is a real deal or not. And there's a lot of discovery questions that you ask around that. But I think for me specifically, I might do a demo, run through the product, show them things, try to tie it back to their goals and pains. And then at the end, I might ask something like, how do you see Hex fitting in to your use case, your workflow? Or do you not see it fitting in? And I give them the opportunity to say no. Yeah. So you give them the space to think about this problem. And then if it's a good fit, they don't feel like you're selling this to them. They already convinced because they can put hacks in their own roadmap in the picture. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times it's not so much whether or not they see value 
in Hex, but more of the behind the scenes process. Do they have budget? Can they convince leader, the buyer, economic buyer is what we call it, to actually go pull a trigger on this? And some of it is just building a case so that they can share internally with their team and get buy-in. Yeah, this is so interesting because for data scientists, we need to get buy-in from stakeholders all the time. And last year, I taught a career course, and we talked about a few questions you can ask stakeholders. It's very similar to how do you do this type of discovery. You want to see, do they have support from their management? Do they have budget? And how does this fit in their workflow? Basically, if I build this for you, are you actually going to use it? Or are you just curious what does this analysis will look like? And definitely want to discuss more about it. But since you mentioned hacks and uh, a data science workflow, maybe you can just give us a, a, a quick overview of what is hacks and uh, what does it do for data scientists and teams? So hacks is a collaborative platform for data science and data analytics. And users can connect directly to their data, write in SQL or in Python, build charts in a notebook environment, and then create interactive apps to share with anyone in real time. So a lot of the benefits of Hacks is just pulling together these fragmented workflows where previously you might have to download the data, go into a Jupyter notebook, and then when you share insights, you go, to, go into another tool. All of that is brought together in one place with Hacks. Yeah. And going back to the uh, sales discovery, so when you were a data analyst, have you used any of those questions to figure out the commitment level of a stakeholder of a project? How do you get buy-in from the stakeholders? I'm not sure if I did it quite as much when I was an analyst. When I was doing data and analytics consulting, mm -hmm. I did a lot more of that. So I did a lot of times I did executive reporting for Fortune 500 companies and to figure out exactly what to put in it, put in the dashboards, I would interview stakeholders and gather requirements, basically understand exactly what they care about. And then at the end, I will wireframe basically a proposed version of this to show them and make sure I'm hearing you correctly and this is the thing that you want before I actually build it out. Yeah. And for data scientists to get buy-in from the stakeholders, how do you think we can leverage this framework? For example, I think you mentioned ask about budget, ask if they have executive support, how are they going to use it? What are some other elements? Yeah, I think a large, a big one is just understanding what they care about and what they're going to be doing. So a lot of, a lot of times when I go into a conversation with a prospect, I ask, can you describe to me the workflow that you're trying to achieve? What are the outcomes that you're trying to achieve? So that I built something that will actually be useful for them. Okay. So I would ask them and understand what they're exactly looking for so that when I talk about Hex, I can talk about it in the specific way that is relevant to them. I think for a lot of tools or data science work or analyses, there's a million things you can do. There's a million approaches. And 
it's important to hone in on specifically what they're interested in and what will move the needle for them. Yeah. So I like the questions you ask, what's your current process? How does it currently work? And then you previously also mentioned what are some pain you have, what's keeping you up at night so we understand their pain point and also understand how is success going to be measured? What does a success look like for you? As a data center, you know how to use those evaluation metrics to measure your model. And maybe you learned it's not a good fit, then you also don't need to force this project, right? You can pick other projects or basically finding Instead of having to sell, you're finding this alignment. So in your experience, have there been cases when you realize, oh, it's not going to be a good fit. You just tell them, hey, maybe you shouldn't buy Hex lessons. Yeah, there. we internally have been working on what are basically red, yellow, green cases with hacks, mm -hmm. And there's just so many things that you can do with the tool. And some it was made for, others it's not. So understanding exactly where in that like red, yellow, green bucket is helpful. So if there's ever a point where we're in that red bucket, then mm -hmm. say, like, I will be honest, like we don't really do X, Y, and Z that well. If you really, if that's the sole purpose, then there are other tools that are better suited for it. And then yeah. we would move on because right. I think you mentioned this earlier, we're spending our time on it. They're spending their time on it. And if it's not going to happen, then we rather cut ties early and then put our time to better use. Right. So what's your meeting and say focus time ratio now? And how does it compare to your days as a data analyst? Yeah, I have way more meetings now. It really depends on the day, but on a busy week, I might have back-to-backs for half the day, maybe even the full day, um, every day. Whereas when I was doing analytics, I had mostly free time and then a few meetings. Yeah. And do you miss those parts as a data analyst? Or I think probably in general, you enjoy your current role. What are something you miss as a data analyst? That's a good question. I think there's some component of doing a project, doing it end to end, and then having a product to show that was really fulfilling as a data analyst. I don't quite do that now, but there are also internal projects that I can choose to do. So I do miss a little bit of the creating something from nothing and then putting it out in the world, but I'm way happier in my current role. Yeah. And... Previously, we talked about when you work in a customer-facing role, you have more meetings, you interact with more people, especially external customers, and you need to bring out more like extroverted side of you. So do you see yourself as introvert or extrovert? You know, I've thought about this a few times. And during the few years of COVID, I thought maybe I am an introvert, but looking at all the things I enjoy doing, I can say that I am an extrovert. Yeah. And if someone say, I feel I'm a introvert or maybe close to 50, 50 introvert, mm -hmm. extrovert, would I be a good sales engineer? Yeah. You know, I think I know more introverted sales engineers than I do 
extroverted sales engineers. I would say introverts make amazing sales engineers because a large part of the job is listening to people and then asking follow-up questions. And I think it really depends on what drains you and what you find energizing. But I have a friend who's an introvert. She loves her job. She's killing it. And she does get drained from talking to people. So maybe she's not as social in the evenings some days. But for the most part, she's very happy doing what she does. I think she's also motivated by the clear success of sales engineering, where you close a deal or you don't. And it's a very quick feedback loop. Yeah. And for people work as a data science practitioner, working with internal stakeholders, if they want to switch to a customer-facing role, what's your advice for them? I think for people who are interested in switching over, the first thing I would say is maybe do a little bit of reflection and figure out what exactly do you want? Is this something that you think will be suited for you? Or are you just trying to switch for the novelty? And part of that is like really understanding on a day-to-day basis, what does this role do? Talk to people in the role and see if that resonates. And then once you do, once you decide, yes, this is the thing, I really want to do it, then it's going, I think a lot of it is networking, finding the companies that you're, that really excite you, and then pursuing that. I think a lot of the transferable skills will carry over, or I think there are a lot of transferable skills in terms of just managing stakeholders that will translate over. And then if you're already a domain expert, that puts you ahead of the curve. Yeah. And I would add to that, if you want to have some experience of this role, maybe also try to advocate some internal product to say some, a bigger organization to see if you can sell a solution internally in your company and getting feedback, understand other people's needs, maybe have more collaborations with product managers to see how they do product requirement, those type of intake conversations, and then see whether you enjoy the process. And I think it's really great that you explored this side of you, even if you previously thought you are an introvert. And also as we grow, our personality also change. Mm-hmm. So I think even if you think you are a introvert or extrovert, I would say maybe not feel so attached to that label and really try a few small things within your current scope and push your boundary a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're spot on of spot on with introvert versus extroversion label. Ocean is the only scientifically backed personality test. And that one says that it's a spectrum. So no one's fully introverted. No one's fully extroverted. You're somewhere in between. And depending on the situation, that might bring out more of the introvert or extrovert. Right. And previously, you know, this introversion, extroversion, whether it drains your energizes you calibrate a ideal career based on those what are some other dimensions you use to evaluate when you try to switch your career yeah okay so i what did i do i've come up with a lot of little frameworks over the years the most recent one was basically listing out what are all of the things that i do like 
there, all of the things that I enjoy doing, all of the things I don't do, what do I do well? And I think it's Ikigai, the Japanese principle of like the overlap between what is it, what you're good at, what makes money and what you enjoy doing. Yeah. And so I was really trying to figure out the sweet spot of, let me list out all of the things that all of my skills, like every skills, like communication skills, public speaking skills, sales skills, like everything. And let me just like sort of throw that on a map and see what I like. And I circled things. And I think from there, I also thought of alternative career paths. Like if I could do anything, what are things I would be doing? And I sort of mapped that out for the next year. What did that look like? For the next five years, what would that look like? And from that equation, that helped me think through like exactly what makes sense for me in the long term. I think it was really, it would be really easy to say, I'm going to get, I'm going to stay on my career path because it makes me more money or if it gives me, I can build my own team or something like that versus starting new. But if I fast forward five years or 10 years, does that really matter? Will I be that much farther behind on that path? And the answer is probably not, especially because I'm coming in with a good amount of experience. And I yeah. think that like helped me get over the mental block of doing the short-term thing. Yeah. So short-term versus long-term thinking. If I stay in my current role, maybe I will get a promotion. I'll get 10, 20% raise. But is this something I feel excited about long-term, right? Mm-hmm. Is it good to invest the next two, three years just for this promotion or maybe take a risk to try something else? And when you switch your career and also you took over a year off to travel, how did you overcome that, you know, fear of change? Yeah, there was definitely a lot of fear because I was afraid, you know, I had just signed a lease at the time in New York and I was like, well, I have a lease. What about my community here? What about my career prospect? And the thing, the exercise I did at the time was Tim Ferriss's fear setting exercise. And the idea is that you list out your fears that you define, what are you afraid of, which are the three things I mentioned. And then you also, for each one say, how do you prevent this from happening? Or worst case, if it does happen, how do you repair? And for the three things I listed, it was pretty trivial once I put it in that perspective, because, well, for the least thing, I can just ask the master tenant, how do I get out of it? And it turns out that I could just find a replacement. And for our community, I can leave and come back and they'll they'll still be there. I think career was a little bit more of a question mark, but I also felt confident enough in my skills and ability that I thought I would be fine. And I am. And then I think the last part of that equation was what is the cost of inaction? So if I don't do this now, what would happen? What if I don't do it for the next six months, year and three years, five years? And for me at the time, I was single. I was living in New York. I didn't have a family or mortgage. It was the best time to do it. But if I waited, who knows what other blockers will make it hard? Yeah, that's such a great point. We think a lot about the risk of taking the action, but you're also making a choice when you don't take any action. You never know whether the other path for you will work. I think in our programming, we constantly ask ourselves, oh, what if we fail? What if it doesn't work? Mm -hmm. But I think it's also important to make a switch. Oh, what if it will work, right? What if 
taking this risk will come with a positive outcome. Yeah, like we are very wired for to fear loss, but I think we can flip the script of instead of losing our current flow, what are we losing if we don't do this other thing? Yeah. What made you want to quit your job and travel the world? That was a funny story. So this happened around the time of the 2016 election. Um, my friends and I were at a party watching an election, and I was living in New York City, so we all thought that, who was it at the time? Hillary would win. And so we watched the party, or we were at the party, we're drinking, having fun, and there was a certain turning point in the night where it was very clear that Trump was ahead and that he was very likely to win this thing. Yeah. And so at that point, you know, people were getting very upset and we were joking, like, we should leave the country. Like, let's move to Canada. Yeah. And so I thought, well, Canada's cold. So what about we move somewhere else? And I thought, you know, like I had always wanted to live in a Spanish speaking country. Mm -hmm. So I said, what if we move to Spain? And I looked up one-way tickets to Spain for inauguration day, and it was under $200 from New York City. And posted that on Facebook. And that was the end of it. Or so I thought, but the next day I was on a call with my coworker who lives and works in Croatia. And he's like, Oh, I saw that you are going to be in Spain in January. I will too. We should talk. And I was like, Oh no, that's just a joke. And he said, why you can work remotely. <laughs> I work remotely. Yeah. And so that sparked the idea where I'm like, Oh, you're right. I could work remotely. Yeah. What would I have to do? to be able to make this happen. Yeah. So then you ended your lease, you find a new tenant, and then you just pack everything and left? Yeah, I think so. Ended in my, And I found a new tenant, which was a whole different story. And then I decided that I just... So the other fear I had before then was, what if I don't like it? And to mitigate that, I thought, let me try it for a little bit. I will buy round-trip tickets... I'll be in South America for four months. And if I don't like it, I'll just come back and I can find another lease. So yeah. I bought round trip, round trip tickets and then I went down to Buenos Aires, got an Airbnb and decided to stay there for a month and then planned out my trip from there. Mm, awesome. Uh, so what are some best lessons you learned from this experience? Oh man, there's so many good ones. I think the biggest one was I will be okay no matter what. So this was the biggest experiment in having a new start, new country. I don't know anyone. I don't have a job for parts of this. And basically being able to like take everything and plop it down and start, start all over. One of the takeaways was feeling like I'll be financially secure no matter what. Worst case, I got a job door-to-door -door sales, and that's one of the best worst jobs I've ever had. And I know that I can find a job. So that mm -hmm. I think that helped me let go of the financial stress of just even living in our everyday world. Yeah, yeah. And also, at that time, you probably didn't know you were going to take a, t a tech sales, a sales engineer job in the near future. And uh, now you can connect the dots looking at those uh, previous experience. So yeah, that's uh, pretty interesting. It kind of planted some seeds for your career while you were taking a break. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how that all weaves together at a certain point 
where mm-hmm. when you're in the moment, you don't realize what impact this will have on you. Like I certainly did door-to-door sales and thought, I will never, like, this is a fun side thing that I will never <laughs> touch again. <laughs> yeah. And as we are speaking, I think now a lot of people feeling the burnout after the pandemic want to take career breaks. Also in the tech world, people are experiencing like layoff. So what's your advice for people who decided either, you know, intentionally or involuntarily going to take a break? Yeah, I think there's a lot of learnings that you can have from taking a break where it helps you. I think we are so embedded into this everyday world of being in the job, yeah. doing nine to five. And for a lot of it, it's scripted for you. You know, you graduate college, you do a job, you do that for X number of years. And I think this having a gap is a great time to actually think about what you want and be intentional about the path that you want to take. Yeah. What are some like specific things you think people should keep in mind, for example, how to plan for themselves financially or how do, do you worry about forgetting you know, some skills that you have. When you take on a break, do you plan that break? So for example, how do you do those? Yeah, I did not plan. So when I was traveling, I was originally working remotely as a data analyst and then got laid off while I was traveling. And so that was the decision to either go back to the work world or keep traveling. And obviously I kept traveling. And At that point, I had no, like, I was concerned, like, if I take this break, what does that mean for my career? Like, will people hire me if they see this break? But when I came back and started looking into the data world, when I started looking into the data world again, it was actually, it all sort of came back very quickly. One of the first companies I applied to when I got back, I tried to apply for a customer facing role. I think it was just maybe in the customer support success team. And when I interviewed, they actually said, wait, we see that you have a background in data. We Mm -hmm. actually want to create a new role, a data scientist role for you instead. And so even when I was not trying to go back to what I was doing, I ended up being pulled back into it because they saw that I had the skill set and I was able to demonstrate it. Mm -hmm. I think there's definitely some amount of knocking off the rust like reading the literature, practicing the skills a little bit, but it will come back very quickly. Yeah. And previously we talked about how to design a career that works for your personality or for your lifestyle. So when you think about your career, how do you embed your career goals into your uh, personal goals? I think when I think about my career goals, I think I just have one overarching goal that sort of ties everything together. And that one is to optimize for happiness Mm -hmm. because I think it's really easy to like spend a lot of time and frustration and effort going after something because you think you should go after it, but is it something that you really should be? And I think that has sort of guided my thinking both in my personal life and in my career life. And so how that translates is When I'm looking at a career, I look at things like, is this something that will energize me? Is this a company that I respect and want to work for? What is the culture of the company? 
And I'm very selective about where I choose to work. And I think the other thing is caring about your craft, like caring about what you're doing and striving to do it well. And if you can put that level of care and effort into your work, that'll translate over when you are talking to recruiters. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned the most important goal is uh, happiness. So how do you achieve um, happiness? How do you break down this goal into some other smaller metrics? Yeah, I think that's always a ongoing question. I have, definitely have not cracked the formula for it, but I think about a few different areas in my life, right? There's career, there's finance, but then there's also physical health, mental health, and relationships. These are all things that are big contributors to that happiness. So those are all things that I track on an annual basis. Not like I'm not super scripted about it, but I just want to make sure that I am physically fit, doing things for my self-care to make sure that I'm mentally healthy, and then also putting time and effort into relationships. And I think that's a great way to have a goal to prioritize happiness because I think a lot of times we forget how we live this life to work or we, you know, do work in order for us to live. Do you have, say, monthly or quarterly checking with yourself to review? Do you measure your happiness level? Yeah, I don't do it as I don't do it that often. And also I've since encountered literature that's like, you shouldn't track your happiness that closely because then you're comparing. Right. And then it brings you anxiety. Yeah. And then you're like, am I happy? No, I'm not happy. I think some amount of that is just living your life and being mindful. But I do track against the themes of the, you know, of relationships, physical health, mental health, finance, career, and just make sure that I'm moving in the right direction. Yeah. So if you want to give your younger self some advice, what would that be? Ooh, that's a good one. I think I would say don't stress so much. Everything will be fine. (laughs) Yeah. That's also advice that I'm giving my current self. (laughs) Imagine your future self telling you. (laughs) Yeah. I think when I was younger, sometimes when I wanted to be lazy, I would imagine my future self telling me, oh, if you do this, it will make my life so much easier. I think there are like different moments. I, I need different type of future self to tell me <laughs> what to do. I think it definitely helps. There are some days my future self opens some document. Oh, I'm so glad I did that. But yeah, I think now, for example, for I think for both of us, we already been in professional career for probably almost close to eight years, 10 years. It's not sustainable to always, you know, stress ourselves out. So I think sometimes it's important to remember all the times previously you thought is going to be the end of the world turn out to be fine. I think have that confidence, have that calm will help us take more risks and then maybe have opportunities for more career success and also a more balanced kind of work and life relationship. And so now as a sales engineer working in the, you know, data and AI space, what do you think about the future of 
sales engineering role? Do you think this is something that you know AI will replace? Yeah, I think of all the jobs I've had, I am the least worried about AI taking <laughs> over this job. <laughs> there is just so many nuances about human behavior that yeah, AI like. I don't foresee AI getting to that point in the near term, maybe yeah. ever. So yeah. I think the like the soft people skills that it requires to do sales engineering are all like are very valuable and increasingly more valuable, especially as tech is getting dominated by AI. Mm. And what are you excited about your future? For example, do you want to be? A principal sales engineer. Yeah, every time I've had a five-year plan, it has I haven't come close <laughs> to it. Yeah, and same. If anything, going with the flow has gotten me a lot farther than staying on track for a certain plan. So I think if you ask me now, I can see myself being a manager or a leader in the sales engineering space. Yeah, but I'm gonna roll with the punches and see what opportunities come up. Yeah. Before we wrap up, what are something else you want to tell our audience? Ooh, that is a hard one. I have not thought about that. I think I will share that. You know, my life philosophy is I don't want to be on a path because it's easy and I fell on it. I want to be on a path because I chose to be, and I think that's valuable for everyone. Yeah. Ah,、uh, that's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was so much fun.